QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Today's episode is a two-part episode with interviews from Banafsha Askazai and Fatima Raza. These conversations both revolve around similar themes, so we thought we'd present them together. This episode covers issues around Islamophobia, far-right extremism, terrorism, and the struggles that can arise when researching these difficult areas, as well as Banafsha's and Fatima's journeys of getting to where they are today. This episode comes with a content warning for discussions of racism, extremism, prejudice, and violence. The first interview on this episode is with Banafsha Askazai. Banafsha is a PhD candidate who is nearing the end of her program. We'll be calling her Dr. Askazai very soon. In this interview, Banafsha and Jody discuss Banafsha's honours and PhD research, her experiences dealing with far-right extremist and Islamophobic material in her work, and what it's like to learn from the strong feminist Muslim women in your family. I actually started my PhD at the same time as Banafsha. Before the faculty and campus reshuffle, our desks were right next to each other. It's amazing to see how far she's come in her research program. Without any further ado, Banafsha Eskazai. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? Hi, so I'm Banafsha. I'm currently a PhD student here at the School of Justice. I'm in my, hopefully, uh, last year of PhD, as I look very scarily at <laughs> Jodie. Um, yeah, so I'm a PhD student here at QUT, at School of Justice. I'm a tutor, guest lecturer, uh, and a bit of a kook at the moment. <laughs> what is a kook? Just a bit crazy. Just a bit crazy, okay. Right, I was thinking like, you know, I'm not down with the lingo because I'm old now. Uh, oh, stop it. So, as your supervisor, I'm going to tell you that, yes, you are in the final year of your PhD. <laughs> well, I thank you for confirming that. <laughs> let's, so let's just put this out, out there, that I am actually Benafsha's supervisor. Yes. And we've, like, worked together for what seems like a lifetime now, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Tell our amazing listeners about your honours project and how that came about. Yeah, so my honours project... Initially, I wanted to start a, a project surrounding sort of Islamophobia because that was where my passion really lied. And I think just in corroboration with you, Jody, we sort of discussed it and we sort of fine-tuned it to really revolve around discussions of the burqa ban because I think that was sort of happening at the time that we started that. So it started to really revolve around the burqa ban and then, of course, we had to bring in the burger band's number one fan which was Pauline Hansen so the whole project ended up revolving around Pauline Hansen the burger band and sort of how her discourses can contribute towards Islamophobia which was amazing and so that kind of 
formed the basis of your PhD work, which yeah. you expanded on how. Tell us about your PhD work. So my PhD work, so from there, I sort of really wanted to get into, when we talk about Islamophobia, one of the biggest groups of people who perpetrate forms of Islamophobia would really be what we would know as, what we now know as sort of right-wing extremist groups. So I think it sort of was almost like a domino effect, like one thing led to another and I went from, you know, this this very, you know, I would categorize right-wing conservative who, you know, was talking about the burqa ban and, and, you know, making these really Islamophobic comments and having this sort of awful discourse to my PhD project now, which really revolves around right-wing extremist groups as a whole. So not just looking at individuals, but looking at, within the Australian context, at right-wing extremist groups and how they sort of cultivate and perpetuate their narratives and the discourses within those. So tell me two things. One, what do you mean by Islamophobia? Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about Islamophobia, I'm really talking about any sort of attitude, belief, discourse, narrative that targets Muslims or this fear of Muslims based off of their beliefs, cultures, traditions that's based off of completely either inappropriate or incorrect stereotypes about Islam. And what are you calling a, like, what is a right-wing extremist group? So a right-wing extremist group I would categorise as, as, I mean, the term extremist in and of itself is any belief which is taken to the extreme. So when we're talking about right-wing extremist groups, I'm talking about very, very conservative, very white supremacist, nationalistic, uh, these groups that are really on the fringes of what right-wing beliefs are. So these are groups that take those beliefs to the extreme, they take their actions to the extreme, and they take their narratives and their discourses to the extreme. What are the types of things that they believe in the extreme, though? I mean, that's a pretty loaded question. They believe in a lot of things. I mean, the groups that I'm focusing on really have this fine-tuned belief that any group that does not reflect what they are or what they look like is somehow either an issue, a problem, or is simply the enemy. So any sort of ethnic groups, any sort of groups that literally just don't look like them, they, that, that's who they target. So surely, like we see a lot of this in America with neo-Nazis and skinheads and that, surely this is not a problem in Australia. You know, honestly, when I started this research, that's my my line of thinking. I was like, surely it's not big enough to do a PhD project on it. And unfortunately, we are very, very much catching up to America. I mean, America is definitely more far gone, but we are seeing the sort of the branches from American groups reach us here in Australia and they're really starting to plant their seeds and their groups are only growing and developing and maturing as time passes. So it might not be to the same extent as America, but we are definitely catching up for sure. So are these groups, I guess, violent like they're violent in America? We do see some of the groups demonstrate that sort of violence. Um, Maybe not necessarily in the sense that, you know, a mainstream audience might expect violence to look like, where it's, you know, physically going out and hurting people or or attacking groups of people. 
it might not necessarily be violence in that sense, but they are definitely still violent. So their discourses, their narratives, their beliefs, the way they communicate, you know, with the outside world, not just within their own groups, is, is definitely what I would categorize as violent. We still do definitely have, you know, s- certain actions and behaviors that we would ca- categorize as violent, like things like the um, Grampian ri- uh, riots, which was. No, not last year, the year before. So it might not necessarily have been attacking people, but their demonstrations and their actions would definitely be still be classed as violent. So what do these kinds of groups actually believe? I mean, it's it's simple and yet it's not. Um, it's very simply that they believe that their race, the white race, is, is superior to all other races. That's in it in a, in a very, you know, tight nutshell. But once we start unpacking that, we see that their beliefs, it really branches off from that. So they do have this belief that their sort of race or or their group is superior to all other races, but then they start to take on this really, and I think we had this discussion a couple of days ago, this really colonial sort of perspective where it is, you know, we are the best, we need to help other people be better, whether they want it or not. So it's very much like, they, they very much believe that the world has not done them justice, that they are actually the victims of, of a lot of the things that are happening around the world, that they are being targeted, that they are being replaced. And that's actually one of their really big narratives that they believe in is this great replacement theory, which is, you know, all the races are trying to replace ours. So it's it's really complex and I could talk about it forever. <laughs> but... But in a nutshell, it, it is that. It's that, you know, we are the superior race and we will we will rule. So I'm wondering what that means for women, though, in the kind of extremist perspective. Well, with these groups, we tend to see that they take on this very, very traditional gender roles and that, that's where their beliefs stem from. So for women, for some of these groups, the belief is very much that men are the ones who have to stand up they have to lead they have to fight they have to protect you know they're the ones in charge and as women you know women are meant to sort of sit stand behind the men they are meant to support them from the home they are meant to take care of the next generation of these warriors and and homemakers and it's very limiting from our perspective looking in I suppose but for them they think that they are fulfilling what their gender dictates them to do so I'm going to throw in a little interlude here for you listeners and say Banafsha and I have a like a long-standing supervisory relationship now <laughs> and so I'm about to throw a really difficult question out that I would not just throw at anyone and I think it's important to just recognize that we have capital in our relationship yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> that makes this a safe space. Uh, is that not the same as Islam though? That's really interesting because I think that when we're in my opinion and my experience islam has never dictated that a woman's role is x y and z so within my experience we have never and especially growing up you know in a in a feminist household with two religious role models you know my mom and my grandma who are very religious and yet the most feminist women i know i have never seen or learned islam to have that in its teachings to have that you know women are meant to stay at the home and they're meant to look after children da, da, da. you know my grandma was working her whole life outside of the home and so was my mom you know they're probably the most 
hardworking people I actually know and, and their roles were never within the home and from my and I, I want to sort of preface my answer with saying that my answer reflects my own beliefs and, and my understandings of the religion I completely understand that not everyone might agree with this and not everyone might disagree with this but for me I have never learned Islam to teach me that because I am a woman my role is x y and z that has very, very much either been from the institutionalization of religion, where men are teaching their perspectives of the religion to the broader community, and that sort of that, uh, that flow-on effect occurs, or it's been cultural beliefs and traditions that are then imposed onto the religion and said, well, the religion actually says that you should be like this, when in essence it's different cultures and traditions that project that. So, just to clarify, do you identify as a Muslim woman? Yes. And a young woman of colour? Yes. Is that why you're so interested in this area of research? It might be. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated by people's beliefs of what Islam actually is and I abs and I'm sure you know this because I've said this to you a billion times but like I love talking to people about it because <laughs> it's so interesting because I think especially when people meet me initially they don't I, I mean I suppose I don't look like the stereotypical Muslim woman right I don't wear a headscarf I'm very loud <laughs> and I talk quite a lot and then I, I, I think that was my experience initially where people got to know me and then once they found out that I was Muslim, they're like, oh, like, what? Like, you are? You know, I never would have suspected. And it sort of grew from there. And I was like, well, why would you not know that? Like, what, what were you expecting me to look like or sound like? And from there it grew to, well, I really want to spread the word or I really wanted to talk about with whoever I could about what Islam actually was and, and not what it was perpetrated to be. And from there, it became like a domino effect. And I started to see events happening around the world, you know, especially when we had this, this, this war on terror. And, and I was seeing in the news every other day that either Muslim women or men were being attacked or the faith was being attacked and, or things were happening in the name of a faith that I wasn't recognizing on the TV. And, you know, things were happening and people were saying, well, you know, Islam told me to do it or this told me to do it. And I couldn't... I couldn't compute how that related to what my understanding of the religion was. And I think the more I spoke about it to people and the more I talked about it with my grandma and my mom, the more I understood that what's perpetuated by the religion and what the religion actually is is two very different things. How, how on earth do you reconcile that? Because I think that the, like the dominant representation of Islam is very much what is institutionally and culturally. I, I 100% accept that. But also does that, like, I struggle with conceptualising why you're not just something other than Islam in your belief because it is conceptually so different to what we dominantly understand Islam to be. Like, are they wrong? I mean, like I said before, it's, it's, it really comes down to two things. It is the institutionalization of religion and its culture. And it's the way we are teaching the religion. So... For me, I've never conceptualized my understanding of my faith to be anything but as a Muslim. I've, I've never understood it to be anything else because the way I was taught it by my mom and my grandma was that the way I practiced it was the way I was taught it. And that's the way that I saw it being practiced in my home, in my grandma's home. And I don't know, I just, 
to me, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> which I'm sure doesn't really answer your question. But, like, in my mind, how I practice it, I'm like, why doesn't everyone do this? Because this makes exact sense, right? But, uh, you know, at the same time, I think it's really hard when all you are seeing is the negative connotations of something. When you're faced with the positive, it can be quite confronting. And you can go, how could something so good be related to something, you know, what I see is so awful. And I think sometimes, I mean, I, I, some, you know, I've, I had someone very close to me say that to me once, is that, you know, you sort of show me the positive things of Islam, whereas I always see the negative things. And I think, to me, that makes sense. And I'm like, okay, it, it, I kind of get why you would think it would be this big, bad, scary thing, when all you were seeing are big, bad, scary things. And then someone comes in and says, hey, you know, there's actually good stuff to it. And what you're seeing is not true. It takes you a minute to catch up to that. And you're like, how does that make sense? Because there's this, there's a mass population of people that believe and see this thing. Why are you the only person who doesn't? So does that make sense? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I mean, yes. I mean, yes and no. <laughs> My question around that would be right wing extremist groups want us to believe and not even just right-wing extremist groups. But I think there is a general narrative that Islam is the greatest threat to Western civilization mm-hmm. because of the embedded constructs of terrorist activity and because of the Sharia, embedded constructs of Sharia law mm-hmm. and because of the, the realistically, whether it's cultural or it's religious, genuine oppression and control of women mm-hmm. in different places across the world and we know from research that you know if you are a Muslim woman in a traditional community in Australia it's not the experience that you have Mm. so I want to know then is that why should we not believe that Islam is the greatest threat to I feel so gross saying this (laughs) why should we not believe that Islam is the greatest threat to Western civilization I mean the very simple answer to that, and it's probably not a positive answer, I suppose, in a way, but the really easy answer is that, you know, with Islam in of itself is the fastest growing religion in the world. If every Muslim was a threat, well, how do I say it in a way that's not controversial, but if every Muslim was a terrorist, how would we be living in the environment that we live in now. Like, if every Muslim was a terrorist, these sort of terrorist attacks would be happening every other day, everywhere in the world. That's the simple answer. But Tell me the full answer. Islam in and of itself is a very simple religion. And I say that knowing there's probably a lot of people listening to this rolling their eyes going, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if, if, if I can repeat something that my grandma said to me, uh, you know, a long time ago that has always sort of stuck to me, She said, Islam is the easiest religion in the world to follow, but it is man who makes it complicated. And that has always stuck with me. To me, the religion in and of itself is a religion of peace. It very, very much preaches love and faith and and guidance and hope and a sense of community and family and this, this obligation that, you know, our responsibility in this world is bigger than to the ourselves. You know, I've, I've never seen the negative connotations of the religion myself. I've never experienced the sort of negative 
uh, connotations or all the negative sort of aspects of the religion that people say exist myself. On one hand, I do think that it was because I was raised by two feminist women and they taught me... Are we allowed to swear in here? Yeah, totally. Oh, we're allowed okay, to swear in here. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask. Uh, they really taught me to don't, not to take shit from anyone uh, when it comes to my faith. And I think that's something that really stuck with me. And on the other hand, they taught me that... And I think this is one of the biggest things that people sometimes find a little bit difficult to, to come around, is that everything that we are taught within Islam and everything that it teaches, everything needs to be understood with context. So a lot of the things that are written in the Quran and a lot of things that are taught in its teachings, A, you need to understand the context in which it was written, and B, not everything is meant to be taken literally. So a lot of the stories in there where I'm sure like a lot of these negative connotations and negative stereotypes grow from, they're not meant to be literal teachings, they're not meant to be literal stories. Often enough, these are the, the, it's the moral of the story that we're meant to take away from that teaching, or it's the lesson that it's trying to teach us, or it's that sense of hope or understanding that the world is bigger than us. So how then does your faith and your experiences intersect with your research? I've been very, very lucky and very privileged to grow up in a community where I really never experienced the negative reactions to Islam. I've always been very, very privileged that I, I haven't had that experience. And I think to a measure, it might be just because I grew up in a very ethnic community. On the other hand, it might be because I don't wear a, a hijab, which is, you know, the really prevalent or the most visible sign of, of being a Muslim. So I think because of that privilege and because of those experiences, my ability to converse and research about the religion is really unhindered because I've never had those negative experiences, right? And because that religion is so rooted within me, it's it's very easy to talk about and to discuss and research. So when it came to my research and I started to experience those negative sort of effects and I started to really read about them and hear other people's accounts and, and, and sort of read some of the nasty things that people were writing about when I was researching the burqa ban or... Um, when I was reading these Islamophobic comments on Twitter or, you know, that these right-wing extremist groups, their narratives that they were putting out there, that was sort of my first experience with, with really understanding the level of, of hatred that actually exists out there. And it was hard, I will say, initially to deal with, and, and it's still difficult. It's, it's, it, it definitely doesn't get easier. But it's sort of about... I wouldn't say compartmentalizing, but I would say it's about understanding that my life as a researcher researching these things and my life as a Muslim woman can grow concurrently. And that just because I'm reading these negative things or I'm researching these really awful things that people are saying or putting out there, it doesn't have to impact how I view my faith and how I believe in my faith. And I think I've been really, really lucky again that I have grown up with these two feminist women. Because anytime I have a bad day, I'm like, Grandma, you won't believe what I read today. <laughs> Someone said something awful about us. And I've been really, really blessed that she's always had an answer to my questions. And I've, I've honestly, I, I can say I've never had a question about my religion or my faith that my, my mom or my grandma has never been able to answer. So 
I, I've, I think I've been lucky that I've had them to sort of soundboard off of and, and to be able to sort of reconcile that, like I said, my, you know, the, the part of me that's the research and the part of me that is a Muslim woman, they can exist concurrently and they can grow concurrently and they learn from each other. Like, it's, it's, it is really hard to sort of read these really negative things that people say about Islam or about Muslims and not take it personally. But at the same time, it's, as a researcher and, and as an academic and as someone who's, who's doing a PhD, you sort of have to understand that the world will continue to exist and does exist around you. And not everything is personal. Like, it's not a personal attack. These people don't know me personally to be saying these things about me. But that this is just the, one of the truths of the world and you just have to sort of live with it and, and understand it and grow from it. Is there not... Like, I would think if I was doing research about something that was so deeply personal and, like, I researched sexual violence, so I am aware of the level of sexual violence that is out there in the community, more so than your average mm. person, but every woman grows up being concerned about sexual violence... I would think that reading and knowing that this level of hatred and threat was out there would potentially have an impact about how I went about in the world. I mean, it definitely has. I think throughout the course of, of doing this research, it has matured me in the sense of I now understand the level that some people can go to, for sure. I think that I wasn't 100% aware of that because I grew up in a very, you know, good community. I was like, oh, no, that probably never happens, you know, because I've never experienced it. It's definitely opened my eyes and it's it's matured me in a way that I understand that these experiences are real and happening and this level of hatred does exist. I mean, I'm definitely more cautious <laughs> walking down the street, but um, I don't know. I, I, it's, I don't think it's something that has a definitive answer to it. It's something that you sort of face in a day-by-day circumstances. And because I have such a strong and supportive group around me and such strong, independent women in my life, it really helps me to reconcile the way I live my life and the way I want to live my life, knowing that this sort of hatred exists. And... Yeah, I, I just don't think there's a right answer to it. I don't think there's one way to go about it. I think everyone's experiences are really different and I think everyone's circumstances are very different, but yeah. Has your PhD journey kind of been what you expected would be in that intersection of the personal and the professional? Uh, to an extent, I did... I did know that the material that I would work with would be confronting. So I always I always knew that coming into it. I knew that I was working with material and groups who were targeting people who looked like me or sounded like me or, or believed in the things that I believed in. So I knew that from the get-go. But I think knowing that and experiencing that are two very different things. <laughs> So knowing that coming into it, I was well prepared. I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read some pretty awful stuff. I'm gonna work with some, people. Are gonna say mean things about me or people <laughs> like me, and it's fine. I'm gonna be fine. And I, I never had a day where I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I never, I never really took the data home with me in a way that I consciously thought about it continuously. But subconsciously, it did affect me quite a lot. So I, during my PhD project, I definitely had a level of burnout which I think to an extent was from 
a lot of other things that happened during my PhD project, but it also was with dealing with this level of hate. So, although I knew coming into this that it would be it would be difficult, actually experiencing it on it experiencing it was definitely a different level. Yeah. In retrospect, is there anything that you would do, or anything that we as your supervisors could have done, to more meaningfully prepare you for that? I don't think so. I think that working with this sort of data, this is just one of the things that will happen. I think it's a natural process of, of working with really, really confronting material. And I think it's a, I think it's a necessary process when you are dealing with these sort of groups. Because if I wasn't affected by it, I think I would be a bit more worried. <laughs> if I was taking it in stride... So would I. <laughs> yeah, if I was taking it in stride, I hope someone would be like, are you okay? <laughs> You're taking this a little too well. So, no, I, I don't think there's anything anyone really could have done. I, I think it just was a natural part of, of this sort of research, and I was well aware of the risks coming into it, and I think I'm really lucky that, you know, my supervisors sort of warned me of those risks, and we had those discussions beforehand. I think if I didn't have those discussions, I probably might have feared a little bit worse, but, but no, yeah, I, w- I was fully, fully aware of the circumstances before I walked into it, and, yeah, this is just one of those things that happen. So what happens when you get burnout as a PhD student? It, I think it really it unravels itself in different ways to different people. For me, my experience of burnout was I would sit at my desk for hours at a day and I wouldn't be able to put more than like 50 words together. I, I physically could not reconcile what it is that I was doing. <laughs> So I would be looking at my research questions or I'd be looking at the literature and I'd be like trying to make it as obvious and as simple as I could and still, you know, my neurons were just not firing and I just could not put a sentence together. So that's what it looked like for me. It it just was no matter how hard I tried to concentrate, I couldn't put pen to paper, I couldn't, I was having trouble sort of understanding some of the even the most simplistic concepts. I think because when you're at that stage of burnout, I thought everything was more complicated than it was so I would look at a simple term or a phrase and I'd be like trying to unravel it and trying to unpack it when it was very simple and it just it was it just was a simple word or a simple concept I'm like trying to make something else out of it so I mean it looks different for for everyone but I think that's what it really looked like that and I think the just the emotional exhaustion yeah was that just that that inability to be empathetic or that inability to sort of sit still and listen I think that's the way burnout really affected me for sure. So what it, what do you do with that? I mean, I was really lucky because I have some fantastic supervisors and I talked to you guys about it. And I think for me, taking some time off where I just didn't touch the PhD, I literally put it down, put it away, and I, I went away for a while. That really, really helped me. And I, I think sometimes when we're doing a PhD project, we forget that it is okay every once in a while to just take a step back and breathe and live and and travel and and live your life and go out and have some fun and for me being able to do that really really helped me to bounce back and it was a really good refresher and I think I came back a bit more lively and I think I came back making a bit more sense (laughs) 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 
discussions. But yeah, I think that and, and just having a good support network, people that you can talk to and knowing that they will listen, you know, even when you're trying to overcomplicate very, very simple things, they will listen and they understand. And I was really, really lucky to have good supervisors that understood me on that level. So that helped a lot, I think. Hundred, Like I think you cannot oversell the importance of having a relationship with your supervisory team where you can talk or have a relationship with somebody in a position of power when you can talk about what's going on and how that's impacting you and I love that notion of you know doing a PhD is often so intense and so overwhelming and in justice we research areas where you will get vicarious trauma it's not a matter of like if it's a matter of when and to what extent and I think we perpetually need to be getting better at understanding and doing that and knowing that we need to deliberately build in opportunities to be a way to be something other than the PhD student to be something other than the researcher in this yeah I think it's I think we sometimes forget that we still have a life outside of PhD <laughs> it is okay to go on holidays and you know go out with friends and and just to enjoy life. And I think because PhD is so full on, and especially trying to do it in like a three year or four year time, is is still quite a lot. We, we forget that, that it's okay, just take a step back and live life. But yeah. Do you talk about your research with everyday people in your life? I think because it's confronting, so I, I won't go into too much detail because I don't know if people want that much detail in the first place. I do. I, I think I do and I don't. I, I do with a lot of, especially the friends, like the amazing people that we have here, a lot of the friends, the lifelong friends that I've made here, I feel very comfortable talking to them about my project. And I'm very lucky that I have such supportive friends here in A Block that, or our old G Block gang that will listen and will understand. But for the most part, I, I think a, a byproduct of, of getting over that burnout is really trying not to talk about it when I'm not at work. Because if, um, if I'm here, you know, eight, nine hours a day and I'm working on it, I don't want to be taking that home. So sometimes it's fun to, you know, talk about it or tell them something interesting I learned. But for the most part, I try and sort of keep that separate to, to, to make sure that I don't burn out again, I suppose. I mean, it's interesting to me because... In your project, you're really seeing an intersection of a lot of identity factors. So there's a faith system that is really important to you and is part of your identity factor. There's There's an oppositional ideology, which is a potentially a direct threat to your faith system slash personal safety. And I feel as if for many PhD students and many academics, academia is an identity formation. It's not just what you do. It's part of who you are because it is so encompassing and so overwhelming. So you have this kind of intersection in your PhD that you have to deal with around all of these identity gigs and you have to have something to balance that out. You have to do something outside of that to balance that out and part of that is not talking about your work but I think it's true I think it's true that you you work in this intersection of of all of these things which make it difficult to balance that out and not carry it through as a threat in your life I mean it is hard like it it is hard to 
to come to work and read the things and, and work with the things or the materials that I do and then go home and and not continually think about it or not have it sitting at the back of my mind or sort of not look at every conservative group person and be like, well, is there actually a threat to me there? Or, you know, are you going to somehow say something about me when I'm not here? Or do you actually hate me because, you know, I'm Muslim or whatever, whatever. It is hard. It's, it's, and I don't think there's an easy answer to sort of, to give for that. Like, it's something you sort of do live with. And it's something you sort of have to reconcile with, like... I think working at that intersection with all these different sort of ideologies and all these different parts of my identity has been an experience and it's something that I think I'm still learning about and I'm still growing from and you know the more I the, the closer I get to the end of my PhD or the more I work with these materials the more I do learn from it and the answer I have today might not be the answer I have at the end of my PhD but it's it's a it's a it's a curve, it's a learning curve. Well, might I say the answer that you have 10 years into your career, whatever brilliant career that is. We never actually talked about how the, you ended up in the School of Justice in the first place. Hmm. Have we not? No, we've not. <laughs> we've not talked about uh, your undergrad degree and how you, why right. you, why you start, why are you even here? That's really funny because if you had asked me at the beginning of my undergrad degree, what would I be doing in 10 years? It would not be doing a PhD. <laughs> I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> I, um... So I started my undergrad degree, I did a double degree in justice and psychology here at QUT. So I started that as, I'm sure, 90% of the students at Site Justice being like, I'm going to be a forensic profiler. (laughs) 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 Exactly what I'm going to do, I'm going to catch these criminals. Yeah, so that's how I started. Uh, And then I think I did uh, 174, which is forensic psychology and the law. I'm pretty sure one of the first lectures they give you is, you are not going to become a forensic <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. So I went into that class. I was like, fuck, I've done this. I've you know, created my whole identity or my personality about what I thought I was going to do, and it was completely incorrect. So, I mean, I but I stuck with it. I really, really enjoyed the intersection between justice and psychology. And I found... I, I continue to find that intersection interesting, but I sort of just stuck with it because... I saw a career in forensic psychology and I thought that that's somewhere that the degree would lead me to. And I got to my last year of my degree and I believe I did, it was a psychology, I can't remember if it was a psychology unit or a justice unit that I I, I got a a near 100% mark for. And my unit coordinator pulled me aside and said, look, I really think that you should do your honours. I think that you have, you know, what it takes to do your honours. I think you have some great ideas for some projects. Why not think about it? And I went, well, another year of study where I don't have to work sounds fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Another year of being a student, great. So I applied to do my, uh, I applied to do my, my honours at the School of Justice and I think initially I really had more of a psych-based idea of what I wanted to do. And then I think you and I sort of sat down a couple of times and we really sort of dished it out and and drew some lines in the sand to understand what we could and couldn't do. And the project sort of grew from there, the Burkaban project. Yeah, right. So when you 
So you wanted to be a profiler. I assume that was based on, like, CSI? Oh, or... yeah, NCIS, Law and Order. I watched all of those shows religiously, and I was like, I'm going to be like Olivia Benson, or I'm going to be like this person. I'm going to be a profiler. <laughs> I mean, good call wanting to be like Olivia Benson. That's, yeah. like, an excellent call. So Absolutely. what, then, is your favourite theory, theorist, body of work, and or, and I'm going to go probably end, Subject. What was your favourite subject as an undergrad? My favourite subject, I probably would say forensic psychology and law. I really, really love that subject. I can't remember what I got in it, and I hope no one can look that up. But totally, <laughs> I can look that up right no, now. No, please. <laughs> Let's just pretend it was a seven. I think that was for sure my favourite subject. That, and I, I remember really liking theories of crime. I think forensic psychology and law was definitely my favourite. Yeah. yeah, that intersection between psychology and the law I think was what really drew my interest initially but I loved all my units <laughs> <laughs> and what about your favourite theory theorist body of work that's I mean I said before we started this podcast that I probably wouldn't talk about maths and psychs but I actually do really like maths and psychs probably because I've been so all encompassed in their theories for the past three years I do really like this idea of these techniques of neutralization, which is which is their theory from 1957. I really, really like it because I think that this ability to neutralize or justify our own actions and our beliefs is, it happens everywhere. And I think the more I learned about this theory and the more I sort of really, really you know, encompass myself with this work, the more I realize that these neutralizations and these justifications happen everywhere. There's no part of life or there's, there's no area in life that these these this theory doesn't touch the theory originally talks about delinquents and it talks about you know delinquents being part of sort of deviant groups and broader society and being able to drift between the two but i think as we see as the as the theory sort of grows is that these neutralization techniques are present everywhere and so for me i find it really interesting because sometimes i'll be talking to someone and someone will say to them like hmm that sounds like a neutralization that sounds like a <laughs> denial of victim wonder why you said that <laughs> and it just becomes ever present and i think like i said before the more i sort of work in this field the more it becomes the forefront of my consciousness and the more i talk to people the more i recognize it and it's it's really interesting because i think denial which is it's sort of where these neutralizations and justifications grow from is a really powerful tool, not just society, like socially, but politically, you know, within our own intergroups at work, within friendship groups, within, you know, broader society as a whole, politics, religion, anything you can think of. Denial exists everywhere and these neutralizations alongside it. So, yeah. I mean, I've got to agree. I really like techniques of neutralization for all of the reasons that you have outlined and I don't think it's a theory that explains why people do rubbish things but it exp- explains kind of the human nature behind why people how people justify yeah they're doing their rubbish things and those narratives and particularly Cohen's work around explaining how uh, governments justify mass atrocities and how we kind of are perpetually as part of being human trying to justify why we do what we do in a way that maybe diminishes our own recognition of our wrongness or our sense of our capacity to perpetrate harm i think is like i think it's one of my favorite theories less 
because I think it is particularly nuanced, but more because I think it's trying to achieve an explanation that it can be evidenced widely. Yeah, I think it's just interesting that we feel the need to justify it in the first place. And it's really interesting, especially when you sort of see it playing out in different groups of people, that, that what necessitates that need. You know, why do we feel the need to justify what we are saying? Or why, why do we feel it's necessary to, to deny this action or deny the responsibility? What, what are we achieving from that? I find that really interesting to sort of just watch. Yeah, part of it is about like wanting to avoid consequences or wanting yeah. to avoid punishment or wanting to minimise the impact of that. But I think part of it also is just about shoring up our own self, sense of self, our own yeah. sense of belief in why we are right and good and okay as humans. And to yeah. do that, I think we throw a whole bunch of other people under the bus sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... It's, I think sometimes it can be, it's really interesting when it's quite performative and we want p- people to buy into this, this face we show to the outside world and we want people to believe that we look or act a certain way when in reality it's, it's very different. I find that really interesting. Just so, just to sort of people watch and be like, hmm, just denied responsibility there. <laughs> and I think that's one of the other things that? That about techniques of neutralization, which is so amazing, is that you can evidence it everywhere in Literally, your whole, like from everywhere. even the smallest of kids. Yeah. Learn so early how to say, yeah, I hit him, but he hit me first. Or... It's, it's, it is funny how it, that you mentioned that because one, one of my friends is, a, is a, a quite a young child. And it's really, really interesting every time I, I see her because anything she says is a but at the end. Yeah. I did do this, but... And she has a fantastic, elaborate explanation <laughs> for it. And it's just so interesting. It's like, hmm, so they learn early. <laughs> <laughs> Very early. Uh, what's your... Top tips for students surviving as an undergraduate? Top tips. I think, number one, stay in contact with your tutors. If you have questions, please ask questions. I mean, if they're really... Look, if it's a question you've asked ten times in class, don't email about it. <laughs> You're going to get the same answer. But if you are genuinely struggling with something or you genuinely have a question, just ask. I've had a lot of students who have come to me over the years of, of sort of me teaching at uni and asking questions and be like, look, I'm sorry if this is a really stupid question, but... And it's a fantastic question. I'm like, why don't you ask that in class? I'm sure, you know, a billion other people had that question. So, one, I would say don't be afraid to ask questions and ask your tutors about it, especially. They're probably the people who would know. The second thing I would say is don't leave your assignments and your exams to the last minute. I know it's really easy. I was that type of person that would procrastinate to the last minute. Don't do it. You carry that, like, that habit for the rest of your life and it's awful to break out of. I'm sure as Jody knows from my work. <laughs> and the other thing I would say is like the degree you start in doesn't have to be the degree you end in. All right. Like you starting a degree, it's fantastic you're at uni, you're studying, but do what you ultimately want to do. Don't do what you think you have to do. So if you start a degree in nursing or whatever it might be and you get halfway and you're like, look, I really don't want to do this anymore. Change out of it. The amount of students and the amount of people I know who have finished a degree for the sake of finishing it and haven't used it is insane. So do what you want to do. If you start a degree and you don't like it, fuck it, change it. If you get halfway through or three quarters through and you really don't like it, leave. There's no point in trying to finish a degree if you know you're not going to use it. That would 100% be my advice. Sweet. Good advice. 
So, Banafsha, I want to say that I think that you have come a long way as a PhD student in understanding the, like, real challenges. And I am super proud of you as one of your supervisors for persisting with that really difficult intersection and trying to figure out that really difficult intersection and recognising that you have to manage all of the complexities in life yeah. through the whole process. And I I think that you are a wonderful human being and I'm excited to continue to work with you in your last year of your PhD. My last year! <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jodie. I really enjoyed this. Our second interview for this episode is with Fatima Raza. Fatima is a sessional academic at QUT's School of Justice. She has a background in family law and a PhD in terrorism. On this episode, Jodie and Fatima discuss a range of topics, including Fatima's research her study and work in law, including working with survivors of domestic violence, and how to understand the teachings of Islam in the modern day. Without any further ado, Fatima Raza. Welcome to How To Academia. Who are you? I'm Fatima Raza, and I am currently a session academic at TUT. In the School of Justice, yes. How did you come to be in the School of Justice? I, okay, so I was finishing my PhD and a tutorial expression of interest went around and came to my inbox and I said yes and I got called. And then I was tutoring here in 2019 when I met a really good friend who's now a PhD candidate here, Emma Hussey. And she said, hey, there's a lecturer opening for a course which was terrorism in 2020 2021 actually sorry and then i spoke to the head of department john scott and he's like yes there is and he had a little chat with me and he offered me the lectureship and i got it and here i am how easy was that <laughs> that was just brilliant yeah uh, as i understand it your background though is not in a justice degree no i have a background in law and international relations and I did my law PLT from QUT. So, so many questions that yes. emerge from that. Why yes. are you not practicing law? I did. I did for a while. So I graduated in 2012 and I did my PLT slash my honours in 2013. And then 2014 to 2016 I practiced in family law at Salvo's Legal in Goodna. And um, yeah, it was fun. And then I went through a personal battle. And then I think my practice became too complicated with my personal life. Mm-hmm. And I had to take a step back and I talked to my dad like, what do I do now? And I was like, well, why don't you study more? Like, you know, do a whole different degree. So my dad's a doctor, he's a medical doctor. Uh-huh. And he wanted me to, you know, get into like health science or like acutherapy or whatever. And I was like, well, no, I don't like any of that. And I suck at science and I suck at math. So I'm just going to go do a PhD in terrorism. And yeah, I did that. Tell me mm. about practicing family law. What was that like? It was, it was good. It was very... So I've, I've always been a person who loves books. So I've been a very theoretical person all of my academic life. And 
in undergrad at Griffith, when you're doing law exams, they're all open book, and you see those cases, and you're like, yeah, you answer a hypothetical, and it's all good, and you're like, this, you know, it never happens in real life. But when you're practicing humanitarian family law, so the clients are not, you know, they're not rich. Mm. The women who come to you come battered and bruised in front of your desk, and they have stories, like horrific stories. So there is a practitional slash academic lens to it and then there's a personal lens and for me I think I tend to get too intertwined in the personal and then when I was going when I was practicing I was going through your personal stuff at the time as well and it just it became too overwhelming like I couldn't differentiate and then yeah but at the time I think it was fine because I was practicing DV and I was practicing divorce um, and it just became it became a conundrum of stuff there's a lot of yeah. stuff in there. There's so much that's challenging there. Yeah. So growing up, like, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? No. Growing up, I, until grade 12, actually, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I went on a United Nations Youth Association conference through high school. So um, my high school was IGGS, Ipswich Girls Grammar. And over there, I learned about international relations, international affairs, and the UN. And I thought, this is really cool. So as I said, my dad was like, you know, he was pushing me towards health sciences and all of that. And I was like, you know what? I, I'm not getting really good marks in this in high school. So I, want, I, don't, I can't do this at university. So I wanted to pursue international relations. And then my dad came up to me. He's like, you know what? You can do international relations. That's fine. But then just add one more year and it's a law degree with it. So, you know, why, why don't you get a law degree <laughs> as well? And I was like, okay. And hence law IR at Griffith University. So there is a, guess, value in education in your family? Mm, very much so, yeah. So my dad is a doctor. Um, my mum is a poet. My mum's dad was a poet and the speech writer for Fatima Jinnah who was um, the founding father's sister of Pakistan. My, like my dad, my granddad from my dad's side was a teacher in Zimbabwe for all of his life. And yeah, so I have two younger sisters. One's currently a QUT student doing um, a Bachelor of Arts in Visual Arts. And one's a doctor practicing at Ipswich Hospital. I love, I love that. First of all, I love that when you, um, <laughs> when you refer to QUT students for the benefit of the recording, it was like a hand down to the ground. <laughs> small child well, for my like in my perception my baby says like she's 20 but for me she's like you know five so yeah so i'm gonna pick up from the fact that you have a slight accent and that you are uh presenting as a woman of color yes that you are not of australian european heritage no, no, no. So I was born in Pakistan. My parents are from Pakistan. I was one when we moved to Botswana. I grew up in South Africa and I was in grade six when we moved to Australia. Why the move to Australia? Because my dad got a job here. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I guess the poet can write anywhere, right? Yeah, brilliant. Mum, yeah, she'd give her a pen and give her a paper, like a pad and she's good. She's great. So she does like radio presentations for like, you know, South Asian channels in Brisbane. But, yeah. So, what was the move to Australia like? To be honest, I found it really... Because, okay, weather-wise, it wasn't different. Because we lived in Port Elizabeth, which is, like, you know, tropical, sort of. 
an area in South Africa. But when I came to Australia, we moved to Ipswich, right? So I came from... Yeah, <laughs> I came from um, Pretoria, which is the capital, right, of South Africa. And I came to Ipswich, and my first, as a grade six-year-old, right, a 12, 13-year-old kid, I was like, wow, these houses are old. Because, like, mine's, like, our house in South Africa was, like, this huge, really nice brick house. And the one the hospital gave to us, like, a formative one, was, like, in this... Queenslander, which was like built in the 1800s or something. And I was like, this is not what I expected. And then the day we arrived, we came, like, the taxi came and picked us up from the airport. And we got to our house, and it was just, you know, crickety and old. And there was, like, these huge goannas in our backyard. And I was like, there's dragons in bloody Ipswich. Like, what the hell? I was like... That's my dream. Like, my dream home. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I was like, we freaked out. I'm like, can we go back home now? Like, what is this? And my dad's like, no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. But yeah, so um, 22 years later, we're still in Ipswich, but in a different house now. <laughs> so, how does a young woman of Pakistani origin end up studying terrorism? Uh, out of sheer determination. <laughs> and sheer will and fight at home that I suck at math and I suck at science and I can't be a doctor but if I want to be a doctor I can only do a PhD and that's how I get a doctor in front of my name and I think terrorism is a subject that everybody even law in Pakistan subject people try to get girls not to do or encourage girls not to do and stay away from because it's so politically robust and it's so in the front and center of you know, of the news and politics and culture in that society. So for women who work in Pakistan, their natural gravitations towards teaching or nursing or something very, um, you know, safe. So they can manage their home and they can manage their work in a very, you know, efficient manner because the priority for a female in that country is to have children and get married and that's about it. So when I, after my law degree, I wanted to, you know, pursue a PhD in terrorism, my... Dad was good with it. Like, he wasn't that, you know, taken aback. It was my mother and my grandmother at the time who were, like, really affronted with the entire, oh, my God, you're going to go to Pakistan to research. Oh, my God, you're going to go visit the Taliban. Oh, my God, what's going to happen to you? But thank God, like, all of my research was theoretical. I didn't actually have to go and do field work, which was good in that sense because I wouldn't get ethical parents to do that. And my, my mother and my grandmother kind of were kind of satisfied at the end. But for me, my PhD, I think it wasn't what I expected it to be, right? So coming from a person who got, who did her PLT and honors in the same year and finished up with the first class honors, I entered into a PhD knowing, you know, three years and I'm done, I'm, I'll be out of this. But then life hits and yeah. it hits real hard. And I, I just didn't expect it because for me, high school finished, I went to undergrad, I just kept studying. It was like, you know, a natural phase. And then PhD second year was just when life bulldozed me over. And I was like, whoa. So my, rather than become a study and like a form of academia and, you know, projecting your career became a safe haven, my PhD, like university, my office or my PhD hub became like my safe spot rather than a spot where I would go and research. So that was a huge learning curve and a life curve for me, which, you know, where a three-year degree ends, for me it took three, like, 
another three years. It took six years to finish. And yeah. So in, in retrospect, I think it was good. But at the time, I was like, you know, just really judging myself, going, why isn't this done? What are you doing with your life? So, yeah. But. What was it about terrorism that was interesting to you? I just wanted to understand the dichotomy between religion and how terrorists use it to justify their behavior, and especially growing up post 9-11. So I was in grade six when the towers fell, mm. right? And I was new to Australia. I was new to an entire all-girl white school, right? And I was the only brown kid in that class at the time. And for me, the world was changing and people that represented my skin color, who spoke my language, were on the front of everything, right? Mm. And everything was negative associated with that. My religion was negative. The way my people dressed or way my you know family you know talked about Pakistan the narrative of Pakistan in front of me was like what my mother is portraying this amazing country and then I saw what was actually happening right post 9-11 and the way the world depicted South Asia or Arab people or brown people and I was like there's two different narratives so what's happening what's the clash and that enticed me and then my religion because I really have a like I'm a huge practicing Muslim, and the way my religion was broadcast and portrayed, I wanted you to know the nuances behind it. Because when you go to the mosque, you're told your religion is this, mm-hmm. right? It's, all, it's peaceful, it's this and this and this. And the way the Western world, the one you're growing up in as a kid, is portraying your religion is completely different. And I just wanted to understand that better um, and that dynamic. So, yeah. How did you, I guess, come to a resolution in that? I haven't. I'm, Excellent. I'm getting there. There is. I don't think there. I don't think there's an easy answer for that question. I think the more I get to know myself, the more I get to understand my religion, and the more I get to understand how society interacts with that. So the interplay hasn't finished. I don't. I don't think it ever will. So yeah, religion sounds like something that's deeply significant to you. Mm. Confronting that portrayal of Islam as this terrorist-driven ideology Mm -hmm. must have been confronting at times. It was confronting as in the sense... I don't think my religion ever confronts me. It's the perception and the mutilation of it that bothers me to an extent. But to be honest, it's not just, you know, the Western world is doing it. I think Islam is being hijacked by Muslims itself, Ooh, right? Tell me more about that. <laughs> so, okay, so let's. I'll put out the very bare bones. I'm a practicing Shia Muslim. Okay, so sectarianism is a very like important part and interesting part that I've you know found in my own religious practice, and how religion gets, you know practiced and spread differently according to different perceptions of the early stages of Islam, right? So for Shias, for example, they believe that after the Prophet passed away, his son-in-law got successorship, you know, the the progression of Islam, but Sunnis don't believe that. So the mainstream Islam doesn't believe that, right? And to be from a minority background in that respect, I think both Shias and Sunnis are kind of overtaking each other and hurting each other. So the essence of the bare, like the, 
basic Islam is being lost. And hence, when Muslims don't understand what, what's being lost, how can we project that to a, you know, a world that doesn't, who thinks that Muslims are on the negative anyway? So, Does that relate to terrorist ideologies? In Pakistan, as in, within the country, yes, the sectarianism has branched out into terrorism for example, right? Because they're using violence to promote their ends, their means. Both sides are. And so therefore, we're not ex- you know, experiencing Muslim terrorism, we're exp- experiencing Shia terrorism or Sunni terrorism against each other. But it, overall, the narrative is terrorism. So I'm not an expert in terrorism <laughs> at all. So feel free to talk to me like I'm stupid because, you know, what I see is the thing that you see in the media. Yeah every day yeah for you what's the hinge point that's different to what you see in the media every day for me that i don't just when you know when the media calls out terrorism and blockades it as muslims right but muslims is is like a pan word right it's a catch-all phrase it's like muslims can be broken down into shia sunni amdi salafi etc etc so Depending on what sect you believe in, what you believe is right or wrong, according to, you know, your viewpoint or your ideology, that splits into what you consider correct in the teachings of Islam and what you consider wrong. So once again, like, for example, Salafis don't believe even in the Quran, for example, right, as the end word of God. And if you you want to have that, you know, that, talk about the, the, the dichotomy between Shias and Salafis and Sunnis, for example. Shias do believe in Quran. They believe in the Prophet. They believe in his family. And Sunnis, like, don't believe in the family. They believe in the friends of the Prophet. So that kind of, um, you know, those small discrepancies create these um, tangible, like, these hates or these, you know, these antagonisms against each other. But then again, in the Western media, it's all just catapulted into one big homogenous group, but they're not. Like, they have these fine discrepancies between them. Is Western media really not only interested, though, in when Islam impacts on the West? Like, it strikes me that we don't actually care if people are out there fighting each other. Exactly, exactly. when that kind of seeps out into... That infighting isn't even discussed, right, in the Western media. Only when, oh, if there's a terror attack, say on the Trade Towers or, for example, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, if that's attacked, yeah, we'll talk about it. But if it's impacting us, and hence, why we don't talk about Africa as much, in my opinion, at least, right? I grew up in that country. I mean, why aren't we talking about the warlords in Africa so much? Because it isn't impacting the Western world. So, should we be talking about that, though? Why not? I mean, why have we... And I found that in my undergrad studies and when I did my PhD and while working here as well, that why do we glaze over 50% of the world, right? And why do we only talk to students within a Western narrative? I mean, I don't want to be rude or disrespectful, but I'm, I'm co-teaching a course in DV at the moment, and the way we're presenting DV is a very, a very white-lensed picture. It's a very, you know, white, heterosexual female-male dichotomy. I mean, DV is such a broad topic and it's such a, you know, nuanced topic, right? So why is our textbook very black and white in this in this issue? That's, like, I mean, that's a really good question. I, yeah. I, I am with you, but, like, 
I mean, TV is one thing because it still arguably is an issue we can discuss localised to us. Mm. And I'm being a little bit facetious here, mm. which I think is my job. <laughs> Why should I care about what is happening in Africa or Pakistan? Why should I care about the nuances of Islam? That's not my daily. No, it's not. It's not. But then to portray something and just, you know, promote it as one big issue that affects the Western world in a homogenous way, when you disregard all the tendencies and the minuteness of it, all of the travel behind the sandstone, basically, of it, then I think you portray the other in a very... um negative format and if we're priding Australia to be a multicultural country right where we accept and integrate with other nationalities and other cultures because that makes up Australia then I'm think then I think you're disregarding at least 50% of your population here because at the end of the day in a country such as Australia where multiculturalism is our bread and butter so you know the backbone of our social fabric you can't say that, you know, what's happening in other parts of the world, where these people are coming from, they make up your society, is not important. So what did your PhD contribute that was theoretically important? I think it tried to talk about how sectarianism is compounded through religion, through Islam, and we should look at the basic root of religion to understand sectarianism and therefore to understand terrorism within Pakistan as a whole rather than just, you know, Pakistan is, is, is a terrorist hub. So I think it's a bit more deeper than that. So what I want to know is, yeah. it must have been challenging to you on some level to be critiquing something that was so close to your identity as a woman of Pakistani heritage. Yes, you mean terrorism? Critiquing no, terrorism or religion? I mean, the, the violence in religion. The violence in, in religion. religion yeah. yeah, I don't think it's the violence in religion, and I think that's the hard part of disassociating terrorism with Islam, because Islam inherently, once again, I'm being biased here, but you know, forgive that, um, is not a violent religion, right? Once again, I'm going and everybody says that, but then you go to the Quran and you go to these specific um, hadiths, for example, and there is, you know, association to violence there. So how do you not cherry pick, right? How do these terrorists not cherry pick and say, you know what, what we're doing is right because first so-and-so says this in the Quran and it's legitimate, it's there, right? It's actually there. For example, when I was reading the Quran, not as a person of belief, but as a researcher, right? It was very, very difficult because there's a specific... um, um, Ayah 3.133, I think, from my really vague memory, <laughs> that actually says in the Quran that, you know, if your spouse is not listening to you, that it is okay for a male to hit her, okay? The issue, though, if you look, if a ra- illiterate or, you know, unknowledgeable person comes to this, right, who doesn't have any context of the social, political, religious backing of the source, they will say, yeah, well, it's promoting domestic violence. Your holy book is promoting domestic violence. And when I saw this, and I, when I read it, not in Arabic, but in English, and I was like, okay, what does this mean? So I went to my priest in my mosque, and he condoned that. He said, yes, yes, you can hit. Like, the, the patriarchal figure can hit. 
be that husband, brother, son, etc. And that did not settle well with me, as you know. And I'm a proud feminist on that point, and I'm going to make the very obvious. Like, so for me to digest that was really hard. My parents didn't have the answer because they weren't as knowledgeable on that issue because, you know, nobody goes to read the Quran to digest, like to, you know, academically analyze it. They just read it for the sake of reading it, right, which I find is an issue in itself. But then I researched, I Googled, I few different philosophers and academics and, you know, religious scholars in the area. And I think it all comes down to transliteration of the word hit in Arabic, right? So some people consider it hit as in with like a lightest feather touch would be a hit. You could bash somebody would be a hit. Or you could as, you know, hit as in hit your feet on the mat and walk away would be a hit, right? So it all comes down to interpretation. Once again, if you want to view it as a means to abuse your wife, you will, right? Nothing can stop you from not acknowledging that. If you look at it and say, you know what, maybe I should just leave the room or maybe I should distance myself, the hit means distance, whatever, you will read in that in that way. But the issue of reading the Quran and, you know, reading verses of the Quran that condone violence, if you're a violent person, you'll find violence in it. If you're not a violent person, you won't, right? So that's that's my argument. And to come to that conclusion was really, really hard because at the end of the day, you can't shy away from these things. You can't walk away from verses that prescribe hitting. But as they say in my culture, that Quran or Islam is the miracle that will last eternity, for example, right? So if a miracle has to last eternity, then you have to contextualize it in the times you're living in. You can't contextualize it in 14th century, century Arabia. So I'm going to, like, push the bar on this a little yes. bit. Fully acknowledging that I come from a Christian tradition yes. where the Bible is absolutely full of violence and full of... I would say now mistranslated words because mm. of the struggle in translating from mm. Greek and Hebrew into modern English. Mm. But you said if you're a violent person, you're going to find violence in the Quran. But it's not the very nature of holy scripture that it should teach us how to live. Yes, 100%. And that's the prescribed miracle of the Quran, yes. That it, as a body of jurisprudence, it's a work in, you know how to live your daily life according to righteousness, right? But doesn't that mean that I can hit my wife? If you want to. If, you, if you're going to find, if you want to hit your wife, if that is your innate person, this is me personally speaking, like I have, I'm no religious scholar whatsoever, but if you want to hit your wife personally, right, she didn't put enough salt in your food tonight, and you're like, okay, I'm going to hit her, you will find any excuse to hit her. But doesn't the holy book then say that's okay? Well, exactly, right? So, how do you reconcile this as a feminist, Fatima? Like, <laughs> no, but that's what I'm saying. So, the way the way you understand the word "hit" could literally mean distance, right? It doesn't have to mean a slap, but it could mean punching her as well against the wall. Transliteration-wise, it's up to you. So, some scholars are calling it distance. Some scholars are calling it a physical hit. Some scholars are calling it there's a difference in veracity of the hit. So, it's either a punch or it's a light tap. 
Right. right? So there is no consensus. That's my point. There is no consensus, and that's the issue. So my PhD tried to reconcile, you know, sectarianism through religion, that, you know, because of these specific verses, sectarianism is an issue in the country, and hence terrorism is an issue in the country. But at the end of the day, because no religious scholar, no religious sect has a consensus on how to understand this, we are in the midst of a conundrum, which I'm trying my level best to understand in this real lifetime Define I have. terrorism for me. Maybe we should have done this at the beginning. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Define terrorism for me. In the context of my PhD, the way I defined it there. Yeah, totally. So any act which is politically or religiously you know, negative, than any actions which are politically, religiously negative, and they use religion as a means to provoke violence, I think. I'm just running through the litany of examples that I can think of from Parliament yeah. in Australia that... Would use it. and would, Can you t- tell us about some that spring to your mind? I mean, I think the biggest example in Australia yeah. would be the Lindt Cafe siege. Tell me more. I think the use of religious insignia the use of black flags, you know, with Arabic inscribed on them, the entire hostage situation is, I think, a textbook example of what terrorism is perceived as with a religious facade. Was it not terrorism? It no, was I'm, not, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm saying it was. But I think that's... Like, nobody tries to understand why the religious facade, though, right? I'm like, you know... Once again, coming back to the very basis of it, hitting somebody is an act of terrorism, right? Without the public catch call, right? Without the public voyeurism in it. If I hit you right now, I'm committing an act of terrorism. Why? I don't understand that. Why not? Well, it depends depends on why you're hitting me. Contextually, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Like, if if you're hitting me, because this is the example, because I'm a queer woman, yeah, and your religion says that, like, yeah, okay, for example, yeah, that I can go hit you, you can go, right? You can go hit me. You're yeah, saying that's an, you understand that to be an act of terrorism. Yes. Yeah, interesting. yeah, yeah, I do. Huh. Because once again, as you know, a person of color, a person of faith, I don't believe anything unnat- like naturally. So I think violence is an unnatural phenomenon, personally. Ooh, tell me. <laughs> Because I I don't believe in the ideology of, say, Thomas Hobbes, for example, that human nature is is essentially nasty, brutish, and short. I don't believe that. You really? You don't believe that? No, no. I think we have... Based on what evidence is the foundation of the social contract that humans are fundamentally selfish? Selfish, yes, exactly. Why do you not believe that? I think we've come to understand humans as selfish because of culture, because of society, the whole amelioration of things. Not... And I don't think our innate personality or innate individuality creates us or, you know, promotes us to be evil. I don't think any child born is born with, you know, the idea that I'm going to become a murderer or a terrorist someday, right? Baby X, Y, Z. So, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about nature versus nurture completely. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. agree, but mm. like you said... Babies don't grow up thinking that, don't just grow up thinking they're going to be terrorists. But do mm. terrorists think they're terrorists? No, exactly. No. Sure. Hell no. I mean, not from my studies, at least. Not from my research and my interest in it. No. They're, they're, you know, 
they consider themselves to be the warriors of God. Yeah, totally. But does I mean, God need warriors? Look. <laughs> but that's my point. Does God need defending? So, I mean, <laughs> it's the old adage that one man's terrorist, another man's freedom, freedom fighter. fighter. 100%, like, that's... yeah. But then, once again, I think that's too romantic of a situation. I think we romanticise terrorism in that sense. We romanticise violence in that sense. I'm totally intrigued by yeah. this. You, you don't think that we are innately violent. Because no. I actually think that violence is innate to the human condition. I, I think... Okay, I've, I've, I wrote this Facebook post a while ago, and I'm going to say it here. I think laughter is taught. Crying is a natural phenomenon. Oh, right. Oh, why did, what does that mean? Right. So we have personally. So once again, not a religious scholar at all. Don't quote me on this at all. Please don't. I just believe that humans have a we are taught certain behaviors, violence being one of them. I don't think I think in the wild, violence is only shown in the manner of self-preservation. Right. So in if you go to the jungle, a lion will attack when it's hungry or when it's fending for it or defending itself, right? No lion attacks another lion just because they hate it, right? I don't think that's, that's natural. So, and I see that you're going, uh... <laughs> like, I, mean, I, don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about lions. Neither do I, neither do I, right? Neither, not a lion, never been a lion, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a friend who's a lion either. <laughs> I'm going to say my research experience with lions. Yeah. We should write an article on this. Lion behavior. more about sharks. <laughs> yeah, all that. But I just, I just don't, I don't see, maybe, maybe my worldview is too um, naive. Maybe. I don't know. But, or, you know, I grew up in a very protected, <laughs> loving household. So my worldview is, you know, tainted with that. I don't know. But I just don't see, I don't see a tendency, humans having a tendency of hate towards each other unless it's not taught. Right. In South Africa, black babies and white babies were playing, you know, play together, right? Unless you don't tell them, oh, look, don't like this person because their color is darker than yours. They're not going to care. So hate has to be taught. It's like laughter. Something has to be funny for you to react to it. So hate, I think, is, yes, it's internal, but I think the reaction or the, the prevalence towards hate, I think it's a taught phenomena. I don't think we're... I don't think we're encouraged to love. We're encouraged to hate. Do you have grand philosophical philosophical? Let me rephrase that. Do you have grand discussions about philosophy at the dinner table? We do. We do. Is that sad? I I don't. I think because my mum and not so much my dad. He's more scientific. But my mum because he her father was a poet and a philosopher. So she does, and she just talks about random things. And we have those discussions, like my sisters and I, mum and dad. And sometimes when people come over for dinner, they just look at us really weirdly, going, what the hell are you on about? Like, you know, and once again, coming from, you know, a Pakistani cultural background, having, you know, discussions on rape and um, pregnancy and sex for a girl with her father at Bloody 32 is very odd in my culture, okay? But when people come over and my dad and I are discussing, they're like, shh, you can't say that to your dad. Is that primarily people from, I guess, your own cultural and mm. religious background? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to come to dinner at your house. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing, I'm into it. Please oh, do. Okay. My mum makes really good samosas. How do you 
make the distinction when you're engaged in this work between Fatima the academic and Fatima the woman of a particular religious and cultural heritage? I don't think there's a distinction. I think whatever, whoever I am, whatever my thought process is, is me. And it's just, and if I can use my platforms in which I, which I think this country has given me, these, you know, huge academic successes and these huge, like, you know, platforms where I can speak, I think I'm going to use any means necessary to say to a girl sitting in Pakistan making rotis at home that, hey, you do have a voice and you can use it and, you know, girls like me have, are doing it that are your skin color. Can they, though? In I Pakistan? think at the moment, the, t- the tides are shifting. I think right now in Pakistan, to be a woman is a very good time compared to when my mom was growing up or when my grandmother was growing up in that country. It's still hard. I'm not saying, you know, the Fatima here, sitting in this chair, if I was in Pakistan, I'd have the same opportunities. No, I wouldn't. But would I have an opportunity? Yes. See? So the, there's a difference. So, like... Same, definitely not the same opportunities, but but an opportunity. It sounds like you have some really strong female role models in your world. In my world? Yeah. From where I hark? In Fatima's world or just a Pakistani world? In your world. Like you, your mum and your grandmother sound like they're really... My mum, yes. My grandmother to an extent, yes. But for me, I think my biggest role model has been... Um, my teachers at university, sorry. I think my English teacher in high school, Mrs. Cowan, who just, you know... Shout out. I, I love oh, that woman. I mean, I haven't seen her forever now, but, like, the love for English and the written word, I credit her for that. Like, we did this play called The Crucible in high school, and the way she explained and taught that to me, I was in awe. And then my lecturers at Griffith, I mean, if one day I could just replicate what they did for me in a classroom, I'd just be head over heels. But yeah. So, tell me about your favorite theory theorist. Ooh, um, I have a lot. I think one of my favorite theorists or um, political commentators, but not overtly political, has to be Sadat Hassan Manto. He was a Pakistani novelist prior to partition, and then he came to Pakistan. And he wrote a lot on the cruelties slash realities of life. And he made the obvious obvious. And at the end of the day, he suicided, but, you know, he, he was politically imprisoned. But he wasn't shy to call out wrong is wrong and right is right. And he was, you know heavily heavily criticized and um relegated for that but at the end of the day i I think to speak truth to power you need to speak truth first and then the power comes later right interesting that that comes from a novelist yes he was an essayist yes essay novelist yeah yeah do you have a favorite piece of his yes it's called kali shalvar which means black trouser and it's about the so in Shiaism, there is a month of mourning where, you know, lament the loss of the prophet's nephew because he sacrificed himself in a battle. It's about that entire commemoration that goes on for a month and a half, that commemoration, commemorative period. And it's about that commemorative period, but through the narrative of a prostitute. So the prostitute is a believer. And that is very 
for somebody to write that in the 1940s was very brash at the time, right? So, and it's about, so during that month of commemoration, she has just generally wear darker colors. They wear blacks so or navies. They don't wear like, you know, hot pinks, for example, right? Hot pink is not a color that strikes <laughs> me as popular you know no actually actually on the contrary um so yeah so they were black so this particular prostitute wanted to have wanted to wear a black outfit for that day and she didn't have a black trouser and it's about her you know selling her body to earn enough money so she could buy the black trouser she could commemorate the martyrdom of the prophet's nephew and for a prostitute to do that and to do that in that method to you know, partake in a religious mourning period was a huge, you know, wake-up call for society. That these, you know, people are humans and that they too can have religious beliefs. So, yeah. Padma, I'm going to go out on a limb here yes. and suggest that there is something of a hopeless romantic in you. Uh, maybe, but then I come to work. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. I think one lifetime is too small to change the world, but we can try. I agree that one lifetime is too small to change the world, and your responsibility is your drop in the bucket. That's it. What are your top tips for students surviving at university? Study, come to class, listen to lecture recordings, and do your readings. Full stop. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, literally, just come to class. Please. Please, Please. you guys. Please. We're begging you. Come. We are. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, have a discussion. Come up to your lecturers and tutors and talk to them. I mean, like, I understand that COVID has really, you know, ruined the way people study. But I think that engaging that one on one personal talk with a lecturer or a tutor is just, I think it would work magic. You know, just not not even about study, just general life. Like, I mean, go have a coffee with them. I did that. And, you know, some people find it very nerdy. But I think nerds just, you know, rule the world one day. They will. So, um, you know, nerds just, yeah. Like, you know, just, hey, like, hey, can we meet up? And I don't know about other people, but I would love to. And I would love to have a coffee with my students and just meet up and have a chit-chat. And I think we should have that more often. Just have a chit-chat day with students and lecturers and, you know, just talk about stuff because that's what universities are. They're meant, you know, places of engagement and we need that. When you are, like, 98 and your work is, like, you're just like, I'm over this, I'm not doing it anymore. Oh, but no, back like, celebrated and I'm, like, you know, the next, you know, Henry Kissinger or something. What, what do you want <laughs> people to say about your work? Too... Too forward for its time. I think... The work I want to leave. Actually, I don't I don't think it's the work I want to leave. I think it's the mark I want to make. Right? And I think if you... Like, little just pebbles create waves. So maybe I won't be the next, you know, Rosa Parks. But maybe somebody I can teach will be the next Rosa Parks. And maybe they can say that, hey, I had a lecturer who was as amazing as Mrs. Cowan was. So, you know... Yeah, that's what I want to leave. Awesome. That is a very <laughs> beautiful ambition to have. And yeah. I appreciate you sharing that Thank with you. us. And just having the, I guess, willingness to be out there. 
Yeah, I don't shy away from those kind of things at all. <laughs> Thank you for being on How to Academia. Thank you for having me. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.